I think we need to be careful not to adopt a cookie cutter approach to everyone. And by that, I mean all families, some, you know, families are generally different and situations are different. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 295 of Text Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Klaas for sponsoring this episode. When a farmer retires, how do you manage the succession of the farm to the next generation and what legal structure is best or is there a particular legal structure that is better than another? These are just some of the questions Scott Patterson of Alternate Strategies in Brisbane will discuss with you. The first question to Scott is, how are most farms currently structured in Australia? The most common structure across the country is still the old family partnership in various forms. Sometimes it's just mum and dad, sometimes it involves the kids as well. Um, however, if people have, have gone through an expansion mode, they might have bought more land or bought another farm or they've been through a succession event, Often they will have trusts and companies and other things, and often those are the more successful, bigger farming operations as well. The change to a company or trust structure is triggered by asset protection, I assume, also probably more flexibility with respect to distribution of income. Yes, often it's around, as I said, results from a succession event or an expansion. It'll be around things like tax planning and perhaps estate planning as well. Do you only talk about succession when it basically goes from parents to children or do you also mm. talk about succession when it basically involves sale to a third party? Yeah, no, absolutely. It, uh, succession is about, is about a transition event in whatever form that takes. And often when we talk about succession, it means different things to different people. Often for accountants, the first thing they think of is capital gains tax and, and stamp duty transfers. For lawyers, they think about estate plans and, and wills and enduring powers of attorney. From my point of view, what succession planning means, it involves aligning both financial, business and personal goals. And we have to get all those all those things aligned in order to achieve the right outcome. And it, it, it involves working collaboratively with accountants, lawyers and financial planners. So succession is basically everything, anything and everything that involves the handover of the farm yes. over time. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. In your experience, do most farm successions go smoothly or have you seen a lot of families being torn apart? Okay. <laughs> I'm just wondering whether that's a trick question. Um, <laughs> the, the good ones go smoothly. And, the, and, and by the good ones, I mean those people that start early, that are, that are good communicators, often better educated people coincidentally as well, and they deal with it early. But often, sadly, as you've said, it ends in families being torn apart and not handled well, and oh, that, that is uh, usually a direct result of putting things in the too hard basket for too long. And when you say handled early, what do you mean with early? Are we talking a month before retirement or a year before retirement no, or no. 10 years before retirement yeah. already right at the start when yeah. we bought the farm? We have a saying we use, which is begin with the end in mind. So I don't think you can start talking about these things too early or having a plan too early, and that may be for argument's sake, a 10-year plan that you review annually that comes to its fruition over time. 
We also try and separate out management succession from ownership succession, and that's that often makes it easier for families to deal with where they're just dealing with, with one aspect of it at a time. That's a good idea to separate management from ownership. So begin with the end in mind. So succession planning is really the easiest done when you do it right at the start, when you buy, when you set it up, when you buy the farm, then already thinking about succession so that you can set the legal structure up accordingly. Because later on, of course, you are always looking at capital gains, tax issues mm. when you try to then restructure. Absolutely. I mean, that's in an ideal world. Unfortunately, we don't always get the luxury of that. But in an ideal world, yes, you, you, would, you would begin and structure it that way. Are there certain structures that are much better for succession? It depends, Heidi, whether we're talking about ownership of assets versus trading entities. And I think they, you correctly, as you highlighted earlier, they should be treated separately. Often the old family partnership, which are legacy issues of even a previous generation, are problematic in terms of trying to organise transition. They come with all sorts of problems, but unfortunately we have to deal with them because that's their reality of life. You actually made a very good point and it was something I wanted to actually ask you beforehand. And that is you mentioned trading entity and ownership entity. Stepping away from the old partnerships, when you look at the new modern structures, do you usually have trading and ownership separate in separate entities? So you have one entity owning the farm and then another entity actually running the farm. Is that quite common? That's very common in non-agricultural businesses. Um, we try and organise that from the start. In agricultural businesses, again, it's a result of legacy issues, but often that's not the case. They're, they're owned and operated in the one entity. If we're looking, if we're reviewing structures, which we would often do in a sit-down session with people's accountant, then structure would be something that we'd look at. And again, at that point, we may well separate the ownership of assets from the trading entity. And sometimes that's very useful from a succession point of view because we might have family members that are not involved in working in the farm on a daily basis, live away from the farm, but, but ultimately the parents would like them to have some, some interest in the ownership of the land. Putting legacy farms aside, in modern structures, it is quite common to have the ownership and the operation of the farm in separate entities. Yes, yes. Just touching on the example you just used, when the um, farming entity has a different ownership structure to the ownership entity, I can imagine that would be a long-term breeding ground for conflict because then there's always the question of how much does the ownership entity receive mm. in, in mm. terms of leasing. And mm. I can imagine that is then mm. forever conflict between the different siblings. Mm. If you set it up properly, hopefully not. Because we have those, we have any agreements there, we, we try and document those and have them in writing. Um, I often also, depending on the size of the operation and the family makeup and, and how they work together, often try and set up things like family boards or advisory boards that oversee the whole operation. And so, therefore, you can then sometimes take advantage of the skills of those family members that are not on the farm to enhance the operation of the farm and actually help those those people that are, that are working there on a daily basis. So then it really comes down to the size and the profitability of the farm. If it's a huge station that covers thousands mm. of hectares, then you can have a really good structure that involves many people mm. and hence probably is quite well organized. But if it's a smaller farm, then it probably is almost better to, yes, have 
ownership and operation mm. in different entities, but actually all the entities in the end coming back to the same yes. group of people. Yes, you, you have to you have to cut your cloth to suit the situation, and where where there's small and more modest family operations, uh, yes, you need to take a different stance and and a, and a different view. Yes. Now, looking at succession, so looking at a farmer who is looking at handing over the farm to the next generation or mm. selling it, I have been trying to come up with all the possible options. When I thought about what options. Are possible. I came up with four scenarios and basically either selling, either mm -hmm. gifting or it going into the estate. So mm -hmm. when you're looking at selling at retirement, you either mm -hmm. sell to family or to a third party. Mm -hmm. The second option is you gift to a, a family member. So you basically just say to the firstborn son or whoever it is, but often it is the firstborn son, Here you have the farm. And then the third option is you don't do anything during your lifetime and it just goes into your estate and then the estate handles it. And then, of course, the estate again has the three options of either gifting it, selling mm. it to a family member or selling it to a third party. Mm. Is that basically the palette of options we have or are there any more? In most cases, yes. I think in, in particularly with farming land, family's first option is They would, in an ideal world, they would like to transition it either by a sale or some form to keep it within the family. Sometimes that's not possible because of economic circumstance or they're just not interested in keeping it going. But generally that is, that is the way it, it happens. And that, and if it's sold to a family member, it may or may not be at, that, at market value. It might be just at a, at a retirement value that the parents need to fund their retirement. And again, accountants need to be involved there because obviously we've got capital gains tax options to deal with and those, those transitions are deemed to be at market value anyway. So there's, yeah, all those options need to, need to go in the, in the boiling pot and see what come, comes out. The, the land may just be leased to a family member and then dealt with in the will. If it's all just left in the too hard basket or left to the will, then we still need that communication. We still need a plan in place because um, if we don't, then that's often the case where we end up in court where it's it's in the will, the surprises there that people didn't know were coming and it can get quite messy. Do you see more conflict where a farm is sold during lifetime or do you see more conflict where a farm goes into the estate and then there's a will to deal with it? I think B, in the will. If it's sold during their lifetime, it, there's generally better communication and various members of the family are aware of what's happened and um, or what is going to happen and how it's all going to work. And then also probably the parents are still there and they can talk to the other siblings. So if yes. if yes. son number two or daughter number two comes and says, why did you sell it to son number one for a very low price, mm. then the parents can, can still talk about it and say mm. yes but we put half a million dollars as a deposit into your house or mm. Mm. you know all sorts of things or yes but you're getting the beach house or whatever it is I guess the parents yes. can then still can. mediate and that, commu that communication happens over a period of time and then, then those kids that aren't involved with the land on an ongoing basis have way more time to ask questions and understand why and come to accept accept the outcome Heidi, could I just take one step back in terms of the, um, you talked about a transition to the oldest son or the firstborn son. Um, that was certainly a view 
a generation or two ago now. I, I, I don't think, I'm not seeing that so much anymore. It will often be or often favour that child that is, is perhaps home and working on the farm more than others, be that a son or a daughter. So it's, it's way more, I, th- I think that view is, I mean, I'm sure it still exists, but it's becoming very much an outdated sort of approach. That was actually, I think, number nine or so of my question to you. And because it, it, it was triggered because I, I didn't think it existed anymore. But mm. then I spoke to a farmer in Armada last weekend and he told me, no, around here, the farm goes to the firstborn son if he mm. wants it. Mm. And so I wasn't sure whether that's still quite common or not. So you're yeah. saying... It, no. It really comes down to who who wants it, who who has yeah, the passion for the land, who's there, and who's working it, and who's more involved than others. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Going through the advantages and disadvantages of each of those options I just listed, I think we we already touched on a huge advantage of selling during lifetime, which mm-hmm. is then everybody is still alive and things can be talked through. And if other siblings have any grievances, they can hopefully talk them through with their parents and the parents can mediate or explain or do what needs to be done for family peace. In terms of selling, I mean, that can be sold external to a third party. It can also be sold within the family group. That needs to be organised again early because we need to be aware of and be able to fund mum and dad's retirement and aged care and the amount that we then need to be able to sell that farm for needs to be taken into account. In, being, in them being able to afford going on, but we also need to cater for the younger generation that are perhaps buying the farm from them. How are they going to fund it? So there's a whole lot of questions that need to be worked through there. If, if they're selling to a third party, they're selling to a third party and everyone moves on and does their own thing. And sometimes that's the best outcome, but usually families want to keep it within the family in some form or other. When it is a sale to a family member, so to a child, do, are most are most of the sales you see at arm's length, so at market price, or are most sales within the family at a friendship price, at a family yes, price? Yes, yes, they're, they're, most, they're mostly at a, what I would call a generational value or a less than arm's length value, which is arrived at as a combination of what the kids can afford to, to pay off or service and and what the parents need to retire. With most farm sales you see to, yeah, either to family or to third parties, I can imagine that whenever the farm is less than six million, it would qualify for the small mm. business CGT concessions because farmers often don't have many other assets apart from the farm. The farm is their sole sole asset and then also usually farmers cover the seven and a half year limit you need for the 15 year exemption hence yeah yeah yeah, retirement exemption or 15 year exemption Mm. so i can imagine usually as long as a farm is less than six million the entire farm would go across to the buyer Mm. at zero capital gains tax And, and often often um and again this is where we need to be working closely with their accountant because they can actually have higher assets than that and have a turnover of less than $2 million and still still able to qualify yes. for those concessions. So, it, yeah, the, the, their accountant certainly needs to be involved in, in the discussions and, and are involved in working out the best solution, best outcome. That's selling. Have you seen a lot of conflict around selling with respect to lower prices that the other siblings are unhappy about the lower price? being negotiated as long as as long as they're considered in the outcome and as long as the parents have an overall plan 
they they may and, and often what it'll be something like they're selling the the farm to one or more of their children now at a reduced value but then the others are dealt with in the um, in their estate because and they may receive their off-farm home that they live in in retirement and the value of their legacy superannuation or, or funding that they've used to retire. So as long as the other the other siblings or the other kids are involved in that discussion and understand why and how and how it's all worked out, it do, there doesn't need to be conflict, no. Second option, gifting. Have you ever seen this, basically, that the farm is transferred during lifetime, but mm. at, at a zero cost? Does that ever happen? It does, but again, it depends on, on how well-structured the parents are in terms of funding their retirement and aged care. If they're, if they're able to do that and still gift it or transition the, the farm to the kids, that can happen. And the same rules apply that we, we used for selling at a reduced or less than arm's length or less than market value price. Uh, we still need to step through the hoops and, um, and deal with those capital gains tax and stamp duty issues. Yes, because when you gift it, you still have the market value assumption that it's yes. sold at, yes. at market value. Yes. And so when you gift it, the um, parents still have to deal with the capital gains tax. Hopefully it's all CGT free uh, mm. due to small business CGT exemptions. But mm -hmm. it means at a gift, the uh, receiving beneficiary doesn't get any cost base, correct? Because they didn't pay well, anything for it. No, because the, the land in that case, the land is deemed to be transferred at market value. So they would need an independent assessment of value or an independent value. And that forms the basis for the parents to deal with their tax, capital gains tax issues, and also forms the cost base for the children the acquiring the land, yes. When you're gifting, both sides get the market value. Yes. Now, in most, in most states, there's also going to be stamp duty concessions for transitioning land, farming land from one generation to the next. Um, but again, their account will be across those issues, and there is some variation in that between states. Often it is stamp duty free the transfer yes. from parents to children. Yes, yes. But of course, it depends on the on the finer details and it depends on which state you're in. Yes. And I think, and the finer details, I think, are around how the farming land is held. Mm. When it's Whether it's within a company or not, I think there are slight mm. differences between the different states, correct? Yes, yes, yes. Mm. Good. Okay, so we've covered selling and we covered gifting. So now yes. we come to that we don't do anything during lifetime and the farm just goes into the estate. Mm -hmm. And then I assume that the will then either says what happens with the farm or it doesn't say what happens with the farm. So if the will says it goes into our estate, but then it goes to one child, then that's what has to happen, correct? Yes, Unless, of course, the, the will is contested and then it, and that's when it starts to get very messy and, and involves legal fees. But, but, um, but yes. Or the will may simply say that here's the totality of our assets, including the farm, and it's, and it's, been, been, it's to be divided three equal ways between our three children. And then um, it's a matter of the trustees of that estate sorting out which assets go where to, to achieve that outcome. When you just mentioned court, the main um, legal ground for going to court is this Family Provision Act, correct? Yes. That yes. the uh, children can, that the, the other siblings argue that they were in need of financial support from mm. their parents and hence they're now destitute because they didn't get mm. Mm. a lot. 
And then is it common that the estate sells it to a child? Because that's in the January holidays, I was at the uh, Trilby station near Laos, which is mind boggling, 320,000 acres and quite far out, southwest yes. of Berg. Yes. And there, the owner mentioned that they had bought the farm from the estate. Hmm. Is that common? What is quite common is going back to my previous example, where there might be, say, two children and, and it's left equally to each. What One child will buy the other child out. So they, they already own half of it and they buy the other half from their sibling. Um, that, that's, that's more common than, than a child coming along buying the whole farm from out, out of the estate. Um, they will, they'll usually buy, buy a sibling out in order to achieve total ownership and, and, and keep it simple going forward. Does that usually work more smoothly that one gets three or four market valuations and then one takes the middle or comes to some understanding mm, of the mm, value of the mm. farm and then 50% of the value mm. is paid to the other sibling. Yeah. Ideally, and if, again, if there's been there's been good communication in the lead up to this event, it can be handled very smoothly and doesn't need to be a course of, of, of huge issue. Just like in business and families, it's lack of communication that causes that causes problems. And if if nothing is communicated in the lead up and then the estate comes and the surprises in there that people didn't know were there, that's when it's fertile ground for conflict. Doing all this during lifetime is better than having one sibling paying mm. out the other mm. sibling. I, I think I should I think we need to be careful about not adopting a cookie cover approach because all families are different and farming situations are different. When I made that comment, I, I certainly stand by it, but what I'm referring to is the communication. If if there's a plan in place and everyone understands what's happening and it's all there and understood, but it's not, it's not actually executed until the estate, that's fine. What causes problems is where there's no communication, no plan, and then and then the will is is addressed with and it's a surprise. What is common though is that we need communication and a plan all the way through. If that plan is executed during the parent's lifetime, that's great. If it's executed in, via their estate, that may also be very appropriate, but there needs to be that planning and communication process on the way through so that there aren't any surprises that catch people out or catch people unawares when the estate comes. Yes. So it's not so much really when exactly the ownership transfer happens, et cetera. It's really more about that everybody knows what's happening. Yes, exactly. And I can imagine that surprise is probably the greatest cause of conflict. If somebody thinks they're getting half of the farm and then suddenly they don't get it and... Yes, and, and um, it's surprise and a lack of communication. The other thing that we need to be aware of is that our life expectancy now is much longer than it used to be 50, 60, 100 years ago. So we're living now into, well into our 80s and even our 90s. So by the time that we pass away in our late 80s or 90, our, our children are 60. And so they're almost at the point where they need to be, be looking at the succession and transition. So we need to manage it differently than, than the way we did 50 or 100 years ago, purely via the will. What you just said basically means that selling is better because if you leave it to the estate, then it can mean that a child only really gets the farm when they are already close to retirement anyway. So that means it probably is more common nowadays to sell than to leave it to the estate. Yes, sell or transition or whatever form works, but, but certainly dealing with it during, during the parent's lifetime, yes. 
coming back to the legal structure, what is there a certain legal structure that is easier for succession than other legal structures? Things like um, um, trusts and, and companies are good because we can just transfer control of the trust or transfer the shares in the company. That works fine. As I said earlier, partnerships tend to be a bit more problematic, even though they're very common. And possibly, as you, as you indicated also, separating the operating entity from the ownership of the asset, ownership of the land entity, that, that can also help because we can deal with each one separately then. So, for instance, we might have, a, for an example, a trading company owning the stock and plant, but the land uh, owned via some form of trust. Do you see a lot of stacked structures? So a company being owned by a trust and having a bucket company on the side, do you see that a lot with farming? Again, more, much more so in the more successful farming operations. In... Um, What, what we need to remember in agriculture is that, you know, approximately the top 25% of farming operations generally are way more profitable than the other 75%. So the majority of farming operations tend to be uh, not as profitable as the top 25%. And so therefore things like tax planning and those issues aren't such a huge deal. And so therefore, they tend to have simpler business structures. So when there is not a lot of profit to distribute, you might just have it in a simple trust or in a, in a company. But when there's a lot of profit to distribute, then you might run the company through a trust with a bucket company, with an SMSF and, and the whole. Absolutely. Well, Absolutely. Yes. Is farming succession very different to other business successions? <laughs> at, at first glance, you may say no, but once you start dealing with it, absolutely. And one of the biggest reasons for that is that families, we're, trans, we're talking about their home. We're talking about an asset that has often been transferred down from maybe their grandparents. The homestead on the, on the, on the farm or the station is their family home. So there's, there's, there's a lot more emotional attachment to to the farming land asset than there is with if we own a manufacturing business or some other sort of business. So we've got the normal business issues. Farming is, is more unique in the sense that we have high value assets with generally lower cash flow. So, so funding transitions is, is a little more challenging. And then you combine that with, with um, the emotional attachment to the land and um, and it's it's sort of a um, a legacy from one generation to the next. Farming families often the farm is part of their identity. It's it's who they are. And so the, I always say that the dealing with the assets and the numbers is relatively straightforward once we get all the people on the same page. Welcome back. So the most important part of succession is communication. Make sure there are no surprises. Everybody knows what is going to happen and is happy with it or at least resigned to their fate. In the next episode, episode 297, we will cover an unusual topic for a text podcast. Brett Green will talk with you about the Australian cannabis industry and he will do that to prepare you for episode 298 where we will talk about helping registered cannabis operations in Australia as accountants, tax agents and advisors. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. 
is that quite common for you to do podcast episodes? I've certainly done some, and I've done I've done um, talkback on on radio. Um, I've also I've just come back from a, doing a series of um, of workshops across northern Queensland for beef producers up there, where we were dealing with a host of issues. But I, I ran a two-hour session on succession, so yeah, I have I've done quite a bit of it.